0: the residents of Element City. Air usually has their head in the clouds. Oh, my new jacket. Earth can be a little seedy. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing weird going on here. Uh, Just a little pruning. Water is always getting into something. (laughs) Help! And fire, as ordered, we run a little hot. This shop is dream of our family. Someday it'll all be yours. But we all live by one
1: simple rule.
0: Elements cannot mix. <laughs>
1: <laughs> ah! What the? A pipe squished me all out of shape. Dang. <laughs> That's better. Oh. So you've never left Firetown?
0: Sorry, buddy. Elements don't mix. <laughs> Plus, my dad would boil you alive.
1: Why does anyone get to tell you what you can do in your life? Ember, I see a change in you. Ah!
0: What hair guy?
1: You live here? It's my mom's place. We got two kids that are swimming around here somewhere.
0: Marco! I've been trying to fill my father's shoes, but I never once asked what I wanted to do. Try this! Dad, those are too hot. I love hot food. <clears throat> <clears throat> Pixar's 27th feature, Elemental, opens in theaters on June 16th, and today we're joined by director Peter Sohn to talk about the project, which is set in Element City, where water, fire, earth, and air residents live together. The story follows Ember, who's readying to take on her retiring father's shop when she meets a water resident named Wade. Elemental is produced by Denise Rehm and executive produced by Pete Doctor. Peter Son is a member of Pixar's creative leadership team and previously directed 2015's The Good Dinosaur. Earlier at Pixar, he was a story artist on titles including Ratatouille, for which he voiced Emile, and Up, and his appearance was actually the basis of Russell. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen Pete, welcome. It is great to talk to you again.
1: Thank you, Carolyn. Yeah, I'm honored to be here.
0: So to start, uh, you have a story by credit in this movie. Tell us about the genesis of the idea and what you wanted to convey.
1: I did this radio program with uh, um, Terry Gross on Fresh Air about um, the good dino. And uh, I told her that I grew up in the Bronx and I was born there. And then um, after that program aired, someone in the Bronx, uh, the city of the Bronx, um, called me and, you know, since that you're from the Bronx, we'd love to celebrate uh, you and the arts and uh, several other artists here. And uh, I uh, was surprised by it. And I said, like, look, I was only in the Bronx since I was like nine or 10. I can't even call myself the Bronx. And she was like, you are a son of the Bronx. You will do this thing. It's a great honor. And I was very Bronxian in-house. She sort of set that up. But I, I, I asked to invite my parents there. And so I went to this, Ceremony, and I had a little speech I was going to give about um, on Pixar. But uh, when I got up on stage and turned around to see the audience, I saw my, I saw my family, my mother and father, and uh, my brother and his wife amongst all these other, you know, immigrants and uh, this diverse, you know, group of people there this audience. And uh, um, for some reason, seeing them there um, uh, hit me very emotionally, and I, I broke down to tears, and uh, I just thank them. I just said, my brother and I would not be here uh, if it wasn't for the sacrifices that my mom and dad made. And, uh, someone in the background yelled like, you better thank your parents and sort of brought me back to the reality of it all. But that gesture of, of, you know, appreciating their plight and what they had given up and risked for us really affected me. And, uh, when I got back to Pixar, you know, um, some friends and, um, um my bosses at the time asked about how that experience was. And I told them this story that I'm telling you. And they said, that's that's your next movie, Pete. That's the movie you got to do. And so that idea became the heart of this thing. And so that's how it started.
0: Well, let's start with the environment. You, you set it in Element City, where um, you see the different elements living together. Tell us about just that idea and creating that world. Yeah,
1: so much of it also began from, you know, an early age well, when I was in school, looking at the periodic table of elements. They just reminded me of apartment complexes, like the ones that I grew up around, where each little box with each little element was a different family or a different, you know, um, um community in there. And uh, I used to make, you know, these funny drawings of, you know, copper living next to helium, but don't trust helium because they're gassy, you know, and I'd have all these little fun drawings of that. And then and, uh, you know, uh, the table is very complicated, so in trying to translate that idea of diversity, I, I boiled it down to the um, the classical elements of earth, fire, water, and air, and uh, from there started to feel this world out of different communities coming together, and uh, in the middle of that, this fire family, you know, and um, uh, with our main character, a young firewoman uh, dealing with first-generation, second-generation issues, and uh, and her identity in a city like this. And so starting with her, I was like, okay, she's fire. What would be really a, a big challenge for her and her family to sort of live around? And so I was like, oh, if, if a city was built around water or the, the infrastructure was water, started to form. And then from there, you know, there was a hierarchy start to form. It's like, okay, water came first. When you think of land, okay, maybe it's like a delta, like where river outputs into a a larger body of water and uh, then earth would come the second and then air and then fire. And so with that hierarchy, we started to design the city and uh, trying to use pieces of cities that we've uh, researched. Uh, um, um, The artists took a lot of fun liberties with the places that they were from, but then also having fun elementizing all of it, you know, like oh, what would a, um, a fire town look like? Oh, maybe it's a bunch of chimneys and fireplaces. And uh, with a water town, what if it's just a bunch of champagne glasses with waterfalls going over it? So it was just a mix of all that.
0: What were some of the real-life cities that you took some inspiration um, from?
1: Outside, Yeah, it started off with New York and those pieces that I knew. But then Amsterdam was a big one with the canals and how they sort of, you know, um, um, webbed all those canals through a city, um, Venice, uh, Tokyo, Um, uh, There were several port cities in the United States or gateways that I call them before the advent of air travel that were really interesting that started to form different pieces of the city. But then, um, you know, some of my favorite moments in movies uh, and how they shot um, locations uh, also became a factor. Famous cinematography of of like, you know, Manhattan and uh, Amelie, things like that.
0: Well, Ember lives in the uh, the fire district and yeah. is working towards taking over her father's shop as he's planning to retire. I, I would imagine that her story was very personal for you. Would you talk about creating her, her character and her uh, her story?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, the, I mean, my, my father had a grocery store in the Bronx and uh, a, the idea of... Owning a grocery store, with the amount of money they had, it wasn't just a store; it was a home. We lived there, you know. And uh, when you're growing up in it, you literally are playing in the aisles. You are literally, um, you know, uh, um, eating uh, and and having all your meals inside the shop. And uh, so when we were building this fire town, I mean this 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 fire shop uh, that Ember's family had, it was really taking a lot of those. Uh, memories and trying to make it uh of a fire culture you know you know my parents sold a lot of different conveniences for different cultures uh but what would a fire culture need you know so the charcoal briquette foods and some of these um items uh that we've really had a lot of fun with started to appear but you know it wasn't just the idea of this shop it was the idea that my parents were working very hard in there and uh You know, in our film, we tried to showcase not only the richness of the culture and the 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 items in the shop, but just how hard this family was working there. There's a shot of 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 Ember's father falling asleep at the counter after working all night, and that was something I remember a great deal of. Like, holy cow, the hours are so long for um um um, this kind of work, and uh, to find your dad just you know asleep on the counter after at eleven o'clock was something that we were trying to capture. You know, but then. He was a gregarious person, and so there were so many pieces of how he dealt with customers that we were trying to uh, uh, keep alive in in Bernie and the the community that would shop there. Um, but for Ember, yeah, it was a lot of um, pride that I had of what my father had accomplished that we were trying to invoke not only in the shop but also the culture. You know, she's very proud of being Irish. This is her world. This. Is, it's a hearth. The whole place has been built like a fireplace where a fire can be comfortable burning. And, um, that was, you know, a big piece of all this.
0: And tell us about Wade, or water resident.
1: The idea of fire and water started very early on for me in the development of this thing. I had married someone that wasn't Korean, uh, uh, and you know, this caused a lot of conflict, uh, uh, because my grandmother's literal dying words were like marry korean and then she passed away and it was a pressure that really uh created a lot of culture clash for for me growing up with that Um, and so i found someone that culturally was very different from my culture and uh um, that all that was one of the main ingredients to this relationship of these opposites trying to come together so because of they were opposites, when I when I first started drawing what a fire character was and a water character was, I was just labeling in very elementarily, starting with, you know, what do I know of fire? They, they're passionate. Fire can be deemed like a temper. It could be connected to a creative spark. You know, it, it's translucent. It glows. It brings light to people. And I was doing the same thing with water, but like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's go with the flow. It's, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, uh, transparent. It reflects. It refracts. Uh, all of those things, and then I started evolving personalities out of that. And uh, um, with Wade, uh, something that I, I'm a very emotional person, and uh, uh, you know, I, but, I, but like a sap, I'm like I'm I'm just the sap when you know watching like Olympic commercials where parents have struggled to put. their I will just cry rivers. And uh, um, there was some early drawings where I'd done of Wade being a water person would you know show all his emotions like that, and it made sense because he's transparent. He can't hide his emotions. They're on his sleeve. And uh, that was the next brick to his personality as we continued to evolve him. And so that Ember would be more strong-willed. She had a l- little bit more of a wall. She doesn't like to show emotions. And then obviously someone like Wade uh, that I connected to um, would be the opposite of all that. And, uh, um, and then trying to find a Venn diagram where these two opposites could possibly connect became the game.
0: And you want to talk about what they learned from each other?
1: Yeah. Um, um Wade has always been a mirror character, meaning he's just reflecting um uh what Ember sees in herself. That uh and you know, the this this idea of uh how Wade, you know, leads his life through empathy and um compassion, uh sort of cracks uh into Ember's, you know. Visage of herself that she begins to see that she also has this, you know, um, wonderful connection that she can have with the world, but she's been sort of pushing it away. Um, uh, and you know, in this world of differences, you know, I saw it with my family. I saw it saw it with the xenophobia that we had in our lives. Just that little bit of putting yourself in someone's shoes, that little bit of empathy, really changed the world around us when we were growing up and, uh, trying to invoke that in this relationship of fire and water as well.
0: Now you always hear about the brain trust, um, whenever a Pixar movie is made, um, who was on your brain trust?
1: Um, I had several directors, including, um, uh, Pete doctor, um, uh, Domi Shi from turning red, um, some new, um, uh, directors that are coming up, uh, you know, Andrew Stan was part of it. Uh, Dan Scanlon was a major part of it. Um, and, and a couple heads of stories that, uh, that I had been, that I had trusted over the years and, uh, Brian Larson, um, we had our writers, of course, Julia Cho, a writer as well. They were all fabulous.
0: And do you want to talk a little bit about the brain trust and, um, you know, how did that steer the story or could you give an example?
1: Oh yeah. Um, the process of it, I feel like can be very aggressive in in its sort of it's meant to be aggressive in terms of it everyone's there is to try to help the film be its best and so uh, a lot of the advice comes from trying to diagnose what the patient or the film is having versus well I'm painting that picture only because I've been in other sort of circles where it's just about people telling you how they would make the movie where what i really appreciate about the, the groups at pixar in terms of the brain trust is that they are always there to try to help you help you know the the, the film and uh, um and so an example of that you know the film went through many different versions throughout the years and uh, um some some of it took some personal turns just to be frank, uh, my, my my parents passed both passed away during the making of this thing, uh, in the early development stages when we were up and going. My father had passed away, and uh, um, the film took a dark turn uh, that I didn't realize that it had had. Um, and I was pitching this version that where the world was really angry, uh, really hateful, and uh, um, and I think these were just feelings that I had after I had lost my father, or the things that he had experienced, sort of somehow echoed or magnified what i was feeling about the world and how the world was also changing and uh, um, as i pitched all of this there were a lot of there was a lot of tough feedback and some of the feedback was like peter the world is um unlikable i don't enjoy being in this world of of this film and uh um and so there was just really honest um opinion i mean um comments that were being made but then pete doctor uh, my executive producer, you know, after the meeting was over, said, hey, Pete, uh, you know, like, you know, I know that you're going through, your, you know, the loss of your father. And uh, um, I have to tell you that, you know, this this version seemed to take a dark turn. Uh, was this the version that you always wanted to, you know, make? And uh, um, I was very honest and I said, no, I've o- I just want to make A really hopeful story about connection and uh he said like yeah let's let's pause on this version and you know reevaluate what that you know original intent was and uh i did and then you know for the following years it was just going back to that original north star of of this connection and appreciating those that had sacrificed for us and it's i'm forever grateful just because not only was it about um, helping a film get up, it was also sensitive to what I was going through. You know? There was a war that was going on between a father and daughter in a, a version of the film. It was almost like a godfather type story where they were really spiteful toward each other um, because each of them couldn't get what they wanted. And um, they were like literally, because they were fire, the business was more of a sanitation business where they would just burn garbage of the city And uh, they started sort of, you know, blowing each other's businesses up and it was really dark and uh, it all led into this big sort of um, 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 city on fire sort of ending.
0: And as it evolved and what you actually made, what do you hope children and, and adults take away from the film?
1: I mean, look, it was all built to have a really good time in the theater. I mean, you know, um, um, this idea of this fantastical world, uh, you know, we just wanted to have a lot of fun in it. Underneath all of that, it is uh, a movie about connecting uh, through, you know, um, um, understanding our differences and and uh, um, bridging those sort of cultures. Um, look, if, if, if uh, you know, families or, or children or adults come out of this being appreciative of Someone who risks something for them or sacrifice something in their life—that would mean the world to me, Carolyn. You know, um, it is—it is. The whole film has been trying to find this beautiful way of 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 connecting with each other, and uh, I hope people can feel that. Anatomy
0: of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.
1: Define an opportunity.
0: Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now.
1: Identify a problem.
0: Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Pixar also often talks about research that was done. Um, Would you talk a bit about that?
1: Well, there was a little bit of research that I was able to do early on before COVID hit. And then sort of COVID, when once we hit the pandemic, all the research was obviously, um, 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 you know, brought to a very, you know, sort of uh, world with parameters. But uh, my first sort of trip was to New York to really understand uh, migration and uh, how a city sort of evolved with that. And, uh, you know, it was was beautiful. It was one of the last things I got to do with my mom before she passed was walk around um, Chinatown, Lower Manhattan, Um, uh, Orchard Avenue, where the Lower East Side, where there was a lot of that famous sort of history of of these sort of like, you know, brownstone type buildings where, you know, you had the laundry strung uh, across the windows and everything. Um, But understanding um, the layers of history through the buildings, you know, like, oh, when we were in Chinatown, we saw this wonderful, beautiful, ornate building, um, but it was a funeral parlor for the Chinese community there. But I had research that, like, oh, this used to be an Italian bank, and that's why it was so ornate. And s- some, of those, some of those layers really um, were inspiring to see, like, yes, communities come through trying to make an imprint and trying and all trying to make a, a wonderful life for themselves. And so in the movie, you'll see that type of history that we were trying to capture as well, that when this fire uh, a, a couple comes to the city for the first time, they, they arrive in what was, you know originally an Earth neighborhood. But then it slowly evolves into a fire neighborhood, um, 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 trying to bring some of that sort of inspiration in there. And then from there, it was a lot of science research. We had talked to you know firefighters, we talked to engineers and scientists about the different powers of of the elements, of what fire could do, how it could burn, uh, and, 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 and what the fuel sources might be, um, how it could change color with different um, fuel sources, with water, the power of like how it could move through cracks but really um, have the power to, you know, push, you know, heavy materials. Um, it's refraction, you know, like when it freezes, all of this stuff we all started doing um, that kind of research as well, which was really fun. I was doing this homework stuff with my kids too, and trying to find like, you know, uh, uh, you know if, how much soap would it take to create a bubble in water? You know, could we use a lens to, uh, of, of water to burn something, you know, uh, like, like a magnifying lens? And, well, um,
0: water, all, water, and fire are also um, two things that are notoriously very difficult to do in yeah. computer graphics. So, is this also something that I would imagine that you're working with your um, technology team on? Yes,
1: yeah, so uh, exactly. I, I, as though that research was being done in terms of the visual side of this, or that, or, or the character side. Yeah, the the building them was also being uh, was started, and so I wouldn't call that research. I would just call all of that experiments. Kyle. and there were so many experiments being. Uh, Started at that time of, what could we do uh, with our current technology with fire and water, and uh, we found very quickly that we were very limited to it. Meaning, you know, there was the last sort of firework that we had seen was these effects that was done on the film Onward, which was a very realistic fire. And uh, when we turned um, that fire on for our main character, Ember was terrifying. She looked like a you know like a, a monster from uh uh you know the lord, uh, lord of the rings movie and uh, and so that first uh test immediately forced us to go like okay what's how, how do we find a caricature to this fire how do we control this so that we can allow features on this thing and uh so more experiments started that way until we found this balance between realism and uh, car- you know a very 2d look uh to ember but then on top of that there was no pipeline for creating a simulation or this effect of fire for every shot of the film. Uh, you know, uh, uh, She would be in every fi- a moment of this film and uh, we just didn't have the computing power or the pipeline to do it. Uh, most of the pipeline at Pixar was made for plastic toys or you know very opaque metal cars and skin for our human characters. But we didn't have anything that was as busy and is as translucent as these uh, fluid effects needed to be. And so... That became another uh, uh, um, set of uh, work that needed to be done that ultimately um, Paul Kanyak, one of our TDs, uh, reached out to Disney's Zurich and there was some technology that they discovered um, that helped us control the fire. It was called NST. It was neural style transfer where it was able to take realistic fire and transfer a graphic quality in three dimensions to it and uh, that really helped um uh our find our look to the film and then once we found fire the look of ember water and all the other subsequent elements we would base off of that design um aesthetic and so for water you know we we had done the same thing where we tried realistic water and he was so transparent you, you would just see these pool balls of eyes and this like sort of dentured mouth that you would just be sitting in there because he was so transparent and then so the same caricature level that we were doing with Ember we would do with Wade. Um Wade ultimately became the monster. He was so difficult of a character. You know, there's no way audiences would ever see this or notice it, but in every shot of the film his lighting would change because he's refracting and reflecting it. And so his look in the basement would be very different than the look when he's out in the in the sunlight. And uh, um, trying to control that, and trying to control the ingredients of him that would make him water, would be the biggest challenge, really, of of the technical side of this film.
0: You recently introduced the film at Cannes. What was that experience like?
1: It was a um, an out of body experience for sure. I had never done anything like that before. the um, The history of that festival and of of the the cinema in France uh, is, you know, like. Uh, it, I, I, I deeply respect, you know, from the Lumiere brothers and their first, the first audience watching film for the in the history of the world started there, and then the fantastic worlds of of Georges melier and what they had done at that time um, had always been uh, an inspiration growing up, you know, and going there, uh, and and the you know the amazing set of films that have gone through that place it's quite an honor and then getting to you know it's terrifying too carolyn like i I can't tell you how nervous i was you know walking down some of these red carpets where they just you know are flashing cameras in you and i'm not used to any of it and uh um it was very intimidating and so by the time you sit in your seat you know your heart is about to you know jump out of your body and uh, um um, waiting for the audience, you know, you could, you could feel that they were engaged. And by the end of it, um, they were, they were all standing up in the darkness. I didn't even see them when the credits were rolling. And then once they stopped the credits midway and turned on the house lights on. And I was shocked to see all these people sta- that were standing in the dark, just applauding the film. And, uh, I'll never forget it, you know, um,
0: what a great experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now you mentioned earlier that you actually started working on this before the pandemic with that in mind, um how do you feel about bringing the movie to theaters um you know after everything that's happened I mean do do you feel pressure um do you feel just joy seeing it back
1: um all of it I mean um, Carolyn like the pressure is real you know trying to have the film an original film pop out of a world of uh, you know a lot of franchise and sequels a lot of movies that I want to see honestly you know and uh, um but that it's, it, it's, and so the pressure of trying to capture an audience, uh, that in a, in a field that's so competitive is really daunting. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm very excited for audiences to see this. You know, we've, we've had a couple screenings outside of Cannes as well, um, with audiences that really have an amazing time with it, and it's one of the biggest joys of, you know, this whole art form all again, all you ever want to do is reach out and try to connect, you know, uh, you know, um, like any favorite piece of music that that's, you just want it to create, you know, a moment in time that you can share with an audience. You know, I, I really believe in that, that the human, you know, when there's, there's a lot of people in, you know, in gathered together and they're sharing in an emotion, there's a chemistry that's happening that, um, it can't be replicated in any other form. And uh, um, I, I'm, I'm hoping for that. And, uh, and, I'm, and, I'm, and that's where my joy really lies is trying to get that wonderful audience connection. I feel like the season of, of our films coming out in the theaters have been, you know, it's been tougher. And uh, um, um, will audiences come back to original movies like this? You know, um, I'm hoping so. Um, but yeah, it, it feels slightly different for me because of that. But yeah, it, it's there.
0: What is your favorite scene in the movie and why?
1: Can I give you two if that's okay? Of course. <laughs> so there's a really funny one that I love that really plays to the culture clash and to um, uh, the, the elementizing of the world. <laughs> and uh, it's um, our main, uh, uh, um, Wade, our main water guy. Gets caught in the basement of the fire shop by Ember's father, and uh, he's an inspector for the city. So he's got this little little tag that says "inspector" on it, and uh, um, he uh, he is forced to lie about his job. Where the father's like, "You're an ins- you're an inspector," and he's like, "No, I'm not an inspector," and he tries to cover it up with his hand, but his hand is see through and uh, and a uh, and uh, water, so it magnifies the sign, the sign, making it worse for him, and then he sees that and then he uses his forearm to cover it and then it magnifies it even more. I, I've always loved that as a metaphor of this film of like, you know, like how, you know, it's, it's reflecting, you know, everything that's inside him and the joke of it.
0: I, I remember that shot. Yeah, yeah,
1: I really, and, and it's just the technical achievement of it. It's a very simple gag, but it was very difficult to execute. Um, but, and so I'm very proud of that. And then um, there is a moment that's very sensitive of when um ember uh, our main character has done a set of deliveries at the fire shop she's finished it she's been um challenged by her father to do this and you know she comes back in the evening all you know full of hubris of having you know broken his record and uh you know she comes through the door blasting all this energy of like you know you know um, um, um. and then she's she stops you know mid-track because she sees her father the camera pans over to see her dad asleep on the counter and uh uh when the camera pans over to reveal him, he looks like this small little little campfire sitting on a on a table. And uh um uh you know then Ember you know you know loves her dad goes over and you know um takes care of him pulling out some of the the um the work that he's doing away from his hands to like bring him to bed. And the way the the animators um perform this moment really brought me to tears of, of what I remember of my father working that hard in the shop. And, and yeah, so those are what I'm remembering now. But uh, um, thanks for asking for that. I appreciate that.
0: Would you also talk about why you chose the casting that you did for, um, for Ember
1: and for Wade? Oh, of course. There were two pockets um, that I was looking for, two buckets, I'm sorry. There was obviously performance of where we needed the character to go and then the elemental part of them. And uh, um, for Ember, I was looking for someone that had um, a tremendous fierceness, and uh, but then also a tenderness uh, to their uh, their their performance. And uh, um, I, I saw this film called The Half of It, directed by written directed by Alice Wu, that starred Leah Lewis, and uh, she showed this sort of temper in there, and she showed this sort of strength in her defending of herself and her um, uh, defending of this current identity that she has in the film that really moved me. And uh, and then this uh, this tenderness to her own father in that film that really brought me uh, to Ember as well. But I, I also saw clips of her online where she's singing and she has a really smoky voice. And that smoky voice was the elemental part of it that I really thought could help um, the character come alive. And she did a tremendous job. It's uh, watching her work, she ha- she builds, she like winds herself up in this way before every line that brings her right there. And I've never seen anything more raw before. And uh, I'm so thankful for her performance. And then with Wade, um, it was a very similar sort of a pattern trying to fill those two buckets. I had seen this film called Uncorked where um, he, Mamadou, Aceh plays uh, um, uh, sort of this, uh, it works in a, in a wine shop selling wine and his Go, dream is to be a sommelier, and uh, um, as he's running the shop, he had this wonderful way of flirting, where he sort of improv this sort of really endearing. Um, um, what was his line? It was just like, "Oh yeah, um, you, I, I, you know, I'd love to get your number, but you know, I know everybody's googling." And he did this little song that was so appealing, and it had a coolness and sort of this, you know, i um, go with the flow attitude that really brought. This style um, 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 of Wade in uh, alive, uh, but then there was this show called Oh Jerome Know that he's in where he was able to cry in this full spectrum in a funny way, in a sincere way, and uh, but he di- it, it all was just so you know uh, 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 fluid the way that he was doing it that that won me over of knowing that our character Wade would be so emotional throughout the film that you know, um, um, it was very difficult to find something with someone, a, a performer with that kind of spectrum. And he definitely brought it. And uh, working with him was, you know, one of the highlights of the film. He was just so um, open and vulnerable and a uh, game for everything that we were trying.
0: I know in the past you've done some voice acting for Pixar. Um, do you have a character in this movie?
1: I, I don't. I don't have a character in this movie. It's It's been just the, the, the job has been so much of building this one. You know, what's so interesting was that as I was making this film, I was playing a character for Lightyear, And so I felt like I was right. Performance, yeah. for performance fix in that film in, during the same time as making this one.
0: And are there any Easter eggs we should be looking for? I know you always have them in your movies.
1: Yeah. There's, there's classic ones there, you know, where the pizza planet truck is, what we did to that pizza planet truck is really fun. Uh, I and mean, then that's somewhere in the movie. You know, there is uh you know the Luxo Ball is a is a is a classic. Our um a character from the upcoming movie, Elio, is also in there. And uh, you know, he or she has been in uh a couple of the uh, you know trailers and ads and So it's 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 out there, you know. Uh there's some um, um one of uh my my um mentors who also passed away during the movie, is also in this thing. Uh, Ralph Eggleston, who uh, has just been a major force at Pixar, who uh, I love. And so there's all sorts of, uh, there's some characters from older movies in there too. There's, a, there's a Doug is in there somewhere. So if you can find Doug, that, Doug the dog from Up uh, is in the film as an elemental character. And um, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're little surprises, hopefully for everyone.
0: And um, when I saw the screening, it, it looks like um, Carl's First Date, which also features Doug, is um, going to play before the film. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Yeah. I'm so proud that it's, it's in front of it. Only because my, my short also that I had done, Partly Cloudy, was in front of Up. And so there's some there's something full circle going on with this that, uh, you know, and, and, it, and it came out. It came out Like I was so emotional over it. I can't wait for people to see it.
0: Would you like to give a shout out to your team?
1: Yes, um, thank you, Carolyn. the The production was long and it was very difficult. And uh, um, there's so much. This film is so much about diversity and and bringing that together. Uh, that you know, we we had had these um, sort of I don't know what you would call them. I guess it was part of the research where we asked you know so much of the crew personal questions and and, and gathering personal stories of their experiences with their parents um, um, or them as parents and and some of The crew that had um, um, first and second generation uh, uh, stories as well and we tried to bring so much of all of that into the film and I'm so grateful for not only the amazing technical work they had done but also for all the personal uh, vulnerable pieces of of themselves that they they put into the film and so I'm forever grateful thank you Pixar thank you Pixar crew for all that you gave for uh, thank you
0: Well, Elemental opens on June sixteenth, and Peter, it has been so great to talk to you again. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Carolyn. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Anatomy of an
0: ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.